Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large. And Ann, we were so ready to be through the summer movie season and just talk about film festival movies, award season, all that stuff. But before we get into those developments, this week has given us another reason to revisit the summer movie season because while we were over at Cannes, there was this whole thing with Black Widow coming out, day and date, Disney Plus, and in theaters. And now ScarJo is basically suing the studio uh, saying that she would have made more money if it had gone into theaters in the first place. So this is something we got to talk about because this is the kind of summer, summer movie talk that I think is actually really valuable for understanding the future of the industry. So this, as we're recording, this was recently broken, so I'm sure more information will come out with time. But at first blush, what do you make of this kind of lawsuit from an A-list actor against a massive studio? So back in um, the day when uh, Jason Kalar decided to do this simultaneous 2021 all Warner Brothers pictures were going to be released day and date with HBO Max, the goal and and the Disney Plus goal too. Uh, whenever it puts one of its movies on um, premium or not, you know, for free on uh, Disney Plus, is to get more subscribers. That's their first goal, and they're playing to Wall Street and they're playing to to what makes them look sexy right now in in the you know midst of the pandemic. And so, what's the downside of this is that the entire Hollywood star system has been upended and their paydays, many of them based on back-end deals, based on how much money a movie makes in theaters. This is the old model. And, it, you know, uh, I mean, uh, Matt Damon was joking at Cannes about how he turned down a 10% piece of Avatar. I mean, those were the days, right? So the stars know that they aren't going to ever make those big paydays again. But yeah. they're fighting against the man. They're fighting against the system. And if Star, if, if Scarlett Johansson is doing this, it means that her agency is behind it, her management team, her right. lawyers. It means that all the agencies, all the management teams, and all the lawyers are out there looking to do exactly the same thing with their clients on on whatever movies they feel have been shortchanged by this uh, thing. Now, the, what happened at Warner's and what was happening at Disney is that they had to get bought out when these changes occurred. They had to get paid, given some kind of sum of money that would be a recompense for what they were missing. And I don't understand necessarily, and I think this is what everyone's going to be looking into, what was the contract yeah. that Scarlett is saying was broken? This is my first question. I mean, when I was looking at this and I was thinking, how much more money would she have been making if this movie made anywhere near the vicinity of what a standalone MCU movie previously made in theaters? I mean, this film was 
very unsuccessful theatrically. I mean, it was a 67 percent unsuccessful drop. In, in today's terms. Yeah, Eric. I mean, th th there is a new world out here, a whole new set of numbers. The comps, well, don't of, apply. of course, but and, but and a 60 percent drop or, or whatever that figure was for the second weekend on this movie was really not as 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 dire but, as ever. Yeah. Most movies but, open huge and drop dramatically. Yeah, I understand. I understand that. But you have to you have to go with me on this because clearly there was some frustration that even if that happens to most movies, this wasn't most movies. This was a tentpole MCU film. It was one much in the way we saw with Nolan being so frustrated with Tenet uh, be, being something that people have these high hopes of 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 investing in as a reason to go back to the movies. Here comes an MCU movie that had its release postponed for over a year and is, is presumably the kind of content that works as a as a major theatrical event movie, and it and it didn't do that. So obviously there was finger pointing galore that came out of that. The exhibitors pointed their fingers at Disney. I, I, I assume that that and Disney also withdrew stirred uh, up from CinemaCon. Exactly. You know, also so, knowing that they would be persona non grata. So um, there is a sense, a, and and I have to say, I mean, it's fascinating because I've certainly spoken on, on off the record to plenty of major actors who have talked about back-end deals that they get on a wide array of movies and 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 box office points that, uh, you know, you, you don't even think about them and you realize, oh, that was years ago and this person is still, you know, kind of coasting along or doing smaller movies. I mean, a lot of the, the wealth that comes out of these things uh, is, is, is invisible to a large degree, because we don't spend all the time scrutinizing these deals. And now we're well, going to have an to. enormous amount on the back end when a movie like this uh, does really well. Um, and and it, it, it and these movies, these Marvel movies are expected to make a billion dollars around right. the world. You know, so so this is something we've been thinking about um, here at IndieWire ever since the pandemic began. What would happen if there were fewer theaters? What would happen if the box office was declining? What would happen if you couldn't count on a big 200 300 million dollar movies making a billion dollars anymore and 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 that means that they're trying to get their money from other avenues and they will be or they uh, you know that's the that's the new the new right the new the, paradigm the question is whether they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater and and the what, what i love about this is that movie stars are very powerful movie stars can make their deals up front and they can say to somebody like disney i'm not making that movie if you're not giving me this this and this so this is a a a salvo an opening salvo in a long battle and it's also a question i mean we've, we've speculated for years about how how durable is the concept of the movie star I and mean, this is a real test of just you say they're really powerful and certainly they are but they're in short supply there's only a handful of She's actors who can do what she can do in she's she's powerful as that character and most of the big movie stars right now this is what's happened to <laughs> and it's the last time she's gonna play it the, too the so universe well maybe that's why style. this is so important to her that's yeah. we're answering our own question this, this is it this is her big payday so the question but the lawyers wouldn't be doing it if they didn't see an opening if they didn't think there was a chance that there was some uh wriggle room she's looking for a payout and and she'll probably get one and I, the, que I, the question is how many movie stars are movie stars stars separate from their franchise characters. Chris Pratt 
outside of Guardians of the Galaxy is what or or Jurassic. He's lucky. He's got two. Um, right. You know, and and somebody you know Benedict Cumberbatch in a regular movie is not the same as Doctor Strange. I mean, there there there's no you know Tom Cruise outside of Mission Impossible. Those movies is don't work as well. Necessarily Tom yeah. Cruise. Yeah. You know? Which and and I wonder if that means uh, do these do movie future movie stars have to kind of monetize themselves in a different kind of way? They monetize themselves yeah. in the franchises, yeah. And they go inter they go do interesting things. I did have a conversation with Matt Damon um, at Cannes uh, for Stillwater, and and he totally admitted that he's balancing the big movies against the small movies that he wants to continue to build his cred as a real serious actor at the same time that he makes money on certain things and Stillwater you know it looks like it's not going to be one of the great box office behemoths as an original that nobody knows quite what to do with um, opening this Friday uh, but I, I don't think that Matt Damon admitted that he's at the end of his payday yeah he knows he's been around paid. a while and he he'll knows be that fine. It's over. They Matt all Damon know that it's over. And the Matt Damon and Scarjo will that be money. Fine. Yeah, I mean, I think what I'm more, more fascinated by are a version of the movie star who, who seems to navigate and even benefit from the changing nature of the marketplace. Look at Nicolas Cage, for example. I mean, I know he's not nearly as bankable as some of the other people we're talking about, but he's his movies in a certain way. His movies do really well on VOD and he cranks out a ton of them. A lot of them we don't even know when they come out. But then he I comes along his and he list does when I interviewed him and it was yeah. hilarious how many movies I couldn't really. I Oh, my gosh. It's insane how much I mean, you and, and but the, the truth is he he does deals with companies like uh, RLJ with, where it's sort of like they know they can make some a couple million dollars on him on VOD off name alone. So it, it kind of changes the nature of things. And there are pluses and minuses to that. But there's also somebody like Liam Neeson who had a movie with Netflix that Netflix picked up for, you know, tens of millions of dollars because they knew that Liam Neeson was a bankable star in that context. And I think whatever the new paradigm of movie star is going to be, it probably will be tied more to those metrics, how to get eyeballs and subscribers in that kind of way, then, you know, can they generate money at the box office? Because IP is what generates money at the box office by and large. Well, that's true. And Barry Dillard gave a very good, interesting interview with Kim Masters over at the business at KCRW. And he had gotten himself into some, you know, hot water by some comments he made saying that the, the box office was dying and the movie business was over and that in a few years, and in this interview, he confirms that he thinks that within a few years, seriously, the box office will be 10% of what it is now. I'm not sure I go all that far. Barry Diller made some big claims in down, that <laughs> And it's never going to be up again. And 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 short, even though he, there's a part of Barry Diller that seems to be looking mournfully back at the glory days, you know, when he ran Paramount and, and so on, and Fox, he, he, he did make some good points. And one of the points I agree with 100% is the whole idea that what he, what he said was that he thinks that one pot paradigm versus the other is 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 a wash you know that 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 they would both earn income but that what you're giving away with with the uh with the ability to build word of mouth in theaters is to build you can't build brands you can't build identities you can't you can't build stars and so what you're saying about the star system is part of that equation. How do you take that person from Sundance 
and turn them into Ashley Judd for X number of years, you know, carrying thrillers or, or, or I don't know why I picked her, but there's an, any number of examples, Sam Rockwell, you know, people like that who, who end up becoming a name and becoming somebody who shows up in movie after movie after movie and you know who they are there's no way to identify those people if you don't have theaters i don't think they break the same way in a one on in a one-off movie in in if when it disappears into the other of, of a streaming service all right so this is definitely going to be something we'll have to return to because the lawsuit was just filed today it's going to keep developing and Actors will be making the rounds, promoting various projects, and it's going to be fascinating to put them on the spot and ask them I about agree. it. I, I can't wait. And I'm sure they're all going to have to be ready with their own ways of, of sort of assessing this and whose side are you on and all that kind of stuff. So film festival wise, there certainly is plenty to talk about. The Venice lineup dropped on Monday. Toronto announced its centerpiece. I'm, I'm sorry, New York Film Festival announced its centerpiece. Toronto announced a bunch of other movies. There was one big through line in all of that, which was Jane Campion's movie with she's Netflix, got Power the, of the she's Dogs. She's the one doing the Nomadland walk, if you the like. The Holy Quartet. She shows up. We know it's a Telluride also. So, yeah, yeah, we'll see her show up everywhere. You can do that. You do the math with Telluride, not because they announced the movie, but because if Toronto says that it's a Canadian premiere as opposed to a North American premiere or a world premiere, then it means that it's premiering somewhere else in North America. And that's Telluride. So that's that's going to be promising. I mean, I think with something like a Jane Campion movie, especially in the same year that another woman won the Palme d'Or and that was very exciting. Bringing her back into the conversation as a major director is a good thing for Netflix to have this fall. It's, oh, it's a good fantastic. thing for the award season to have. It's going to give us something to talk about with a veteran filmmaker doing something that both reminds, yeah, doing something with exactly. Benedict something Cumberbatch ambitious. and Jesse Plemons. And yeah. Kirsten Dunst. I'm excited by that. I, it looks yeah. fantastic to me. Very promising. So I, I personally, I can't wait for the fall. I mean, I, I still don't know what the situation is with Toronto, but we are at the moment planning to go to Telluride. Uh, I think we're going to see and you so over are here a in lot New York. Of people. But here's so. the issue, Eric. This is the issue right now. What's going on is that the talent and the distributors and the distributors who feel responsible for the safety of the talent and the agencies and the managers and all these people we keep talking about, the reps, are all huddling over what are the safety protocols at these places because what was once uh, what was can when we were at can is no longer the case and and safety protocols are actually back on uh, on the docket so a lot of people are deciding whether to take talent to Toronto or not and a lot of people are wondering what the safety protocols in Telluride are actually going to be getting vaccinated once seemed like a safety measure that was unassailable yeah. that is no longer true I'm not sure what more Telluride could be doing in this particular sense. I mean, we went to Cannes and had to get tested every other day because well, we that's didn't not have QR happening codes. at Telluride. It's not happening at Telluride, but they have asked people if you're going to have a badge and you need a badge to go to all the stuff, then you do need to prove that you're vaccinated, which seems like a, a pretty valuable starting point. Obviously, with the Delta variant, there are serious concerns about breakthrough cases. But I guess the question is, what else could you possibly do outside of that to assure All right. safety? I, have a I mean, question. that's it's just, it just seems hard movie. to resolve. 
so Eric, if you go into a movie theater with a mask on, cool. You know, I feel no worries about that, honestly. I did it at Cannes. You did it at Cannes. But what if you're asked to, what if you're invited uh, to hang out with uh, Tom Barker and Michael, Ber you know, Tom, Tom, Tom Bernard and Michael Barker at the Sheridan Opera House bar? I'm not going in there. I'm not going into that bar. What if you're invited to uh, have, uh, have, have a uh, dinner inside a restaurant um, at, which is what they often do. I don't think that's safe to go in and have dinner inside a restaurant. I don't, I don't know Everybody what's safe, really. I mean, I, I, I can't. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that I was I was surprised at Cannes to see the absence of masks in a lot of crowded places. And, uh, you know, as far as I could tell, we didn't have serious breakouts and the Delta variant was probably there. I'm not saying that it's a you know direct comparison, but I do think you know, at the end of the day, there's going to be some risk to any of these kinds of events. Telluride is not really that crowded a place. I mean, you spend a lot of time walking around in open streets and being so outside forth. is fine. Wearing yeah. a mask in a theater is fine. Going indoors in a situation where you're dining without a mask isn't fine. And if well, it's I, me, I, I will not go into an interior without and, a mask. And, and we certainly we won't, we won't force you to. But I, but I do think that, you know, the but I don't say, think I'm alone. I don't think <laughs> no, a lot of people I think are that, But I also that. think like these dinners that you're talking about tend to take place in relatively small congregate settings and that as my my mindset for through all of this has often been the more people the greater the danger so if we're talking about a smaller group of people even unmasked but they're also accredited for telluride and had to prove they were vaccinated so you're with vaccinated people your risk is still fairly low as far as i can tell relative to the kinds of risks that people incur when they just go to a random so, restaurant. Eric, are you positing that vaccinated people don't pass the virus? Because that has now been. No, that's not what I'm positing. But I'm saying that the risk that is it's lower. true that vaccinated no, people they can. can carry no, 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 the virus I'm not positing that at all. Pass the virus. So it, the it other can question happen, but we know that it's less likely to be a, a, a problem and that people, even if they do catch it, are less likely to get sick. So, so people are flying are in. People are flying into Telluride. People are uh, going to be on the street with people who live in Telluride, who are locals, who are not necessarily vaccinated. And there's just a lot of possibilities for transmission. I want to go, and I will go. I'm just asking that everybody consider these things when they make their plans. So uh, let, let, let's consider it th this way. We've got a whole bunch of different festivals on the calendar that are trying to figure out various kinds of solutions. None of them are going to get it exactly right. The biggest challenge probably is to figure out what kind of allegiances are people going to decide they have when they choose to incur risk? Because usually it's a circuit, right? You go from one place to another place to another place. There are even some talent who might go to Venice to tell your ride to TIFF. As crazy as that sounds, if you get the right kind of people helping you do those sorts of traveling. But in this particular case, you might not be able to go from say Venice to Telluride if suddenly you're required to quarantine for some extensive period of time because you were in Europe before you came over here. So there's going to be a lot of questions it, about that. Part of it, Eric, is that I live in L.A. I live in Southern California where we have a huge surge right now where, where, a lot, where it's become dangerous again. I don't know that you feel that way in New York and I don't think anyone in Colorado feels that way. 
So it's just an interesting question of, you know, when you, when you know that you're, you're, your own, um, I, we set some of our survival fears aside when we went to Cannes and, and when things were opening up and things were getting better. And I'm, I hate to tell you that when you know that this thing is growing around you again, your survivor fears, fears come back. I totally understand. I completely relate to it on a number of different levels. And, you know, obviously I have other people in my life who, who have pre-existing conditions and so forth. So I have a lot of, a lot of reasons to be concerned about this. And I, and I think the ultimate choice to go is completely individual and everybody needs to assess these things on a case to case basis. And, you know, at this point in time, when I look at, tell you ride requiring people to be vaccinated and i also know that as you do there are ways to make personal choices in any given environment to mitigate risk to yourself and to other people that there are ways to navigate even a situation like this so if we can't I do want, shots at the saloon my, then fine my, we can't I'm do not, we I'm can't go to the bar the shots at the saloon but i am uh, regretfully as you know but um i i will be um hoping that all the events that I want to cover and all the people I want to see are going to be accessible in a safe outdoor setting. This is what I'm hoping. Right. So we'll see what happens with, with, with all of that. I mean, it's going to be a real fascinating question as well. I mean, obviously, there's opening picnic, there's a closing picnic, there's different kinds of things like that. But when people choose to socialize, on their own or they're the after parties for cer certain movies and that, that kind of thing, they tend to be indoors the dinners tend to be indoors. So maybe there needs to be a pivot there in some respect. And I think it's a good question for everyone to look at, including New York and Toronto, because none of us are immune to this rising threat. If anything here in New York, you know, we were riding high and now we also have the danger of the Delta variant. We're not, we're not immune to that. So I think during New York Film Festival, there are going to be real questions about, OK, so you can go inside the theater with your mask on. But what's the after party situation going to be like? Because, you know, there are lots of places that we can go to that hopefully will be permissible outdoors. It's just a question of, you know, how practical is it to do the kind of events to scale that a thing like New York Film Festival might do uh, with those kinds of limitations in place. So the, it's going to be fascinating to see where we're at in a couple of months. As we know, this is a moving target. So much to, much to anticipate on that front. Uh, meanwhile, I, I thought it would be worth talking about some other industry developments. There was, uh, in the streaming space, another uh, big deal that was made was uh, for uh, uh, David Gordon Green directing uh, a trilogy uh, of Exorcist movies for... Universal, but also this seems to be tied to Peacock. Uh, and the deal has been reported at $400 million. And I think there's something that is worth looking at here because it shows you that like the way that streamer money is being thrown around now has completely changed the game in some ways that are positive for, for creative people in spite of you know the, the ScarJo paradigm that we were talking about earlier because you actually have filmmakers who are getting real paydays to try and do creative things with IP. I mean, 
David Gordon Green has the next Halloween movie premiering no, in Venice. He, he earned, he showed what no. he could do with Halloween, staying true to the original, working with Carpenter, keeping it real, and making really good, scary movies with Jamie Lee Curtis and, involved. So I think he, you know, they trust him. Um, it's sort of like giving J.J. Abrams Star Trek, you know, it's it's somebody they think will preserve the, the benefits of the IP and, and go to a new, younger, hipper uh, place. I don't have any objections to this. It's just the real world that we live in. It's the way he can have some fun with it. Um, it's the way things are done now. Um, but it does show you how expensive it is for a place like Peacock to, to, to you know, double down and, and get something like that um, to lure subscribers because they're sort of coming from, from behind. Although I think the Olympics may have helped them. Yeah, the Olympics have, have worked out well. I mean, I've enjoyed watching them despite the weird time zone shifts and so forth. And it's been really interesting tuning in and then getting these commercials for The Office, which seems to be the main that odd? thing yeah. driving their yeah. business model yeah. right now. Yeah. But uh, but it does well, tell that you. Was I mean, proven on Netflix that those shows like Friends and, and The Office were huge, huge, huge drivers. And Netflix, of course, picked up um, the the sequel to uh, Knives Out. You know that was the new. Right. Uh, that was the paradigm for, for this. For two hundred million, and that was a similar uh, same agent who did the deal for this uh, uh, Exorcist deal with Peacock. So I think there is a a certain kind of tendency now among you know, some of the top ranks of, of Hollywood agents to recognize that if you want to really get a good payday, these are the people you want to do a deal with. And there are some really obvious entry points and, and they have to do with long-term investments in, in franchise building. So I'm sort of curious about this Scott Stuber quote that was uh, in a variety story this past week where he, he talked good about one story to, worth reading. Yeah, it's, it's a fun Scott Stuber sh photo shoot where he's jumping around and stuff, but you showing know, off uh, his athletic physique. Yeah, yeah, it was quite the glam. But but the the line where he had about uh, trying to coax Christopher Nolan. So I was making the case this week. I actually think Christopher Nolan could do very well with Netflix if they were to come to some sort of mutual agreement about what uh, a big screen theatrical event movie could look like in the Netflix paradigm because it's they can throw a lot of money at it. Open to, to even having that conversation as oh, Spielberg was. Spielberg went and made a deal at Netflix, although that article kind reveals of. that network is we're glossing Netflix over what has it is. a fantasy that Spielberg will actually direct one of the yeah, movies. Yeah, it's, it's not That's exactly what it sounds like. Everybody's <laughs> like, oh, Spielberg's doing streaming, but he's not. It's like part of his company and he's going to have production yeah, yeah, yeah. credits. No, he's it. looking it's not for so money. Radical. He's looking for support. Yeah. But, the, but the point is that money talks and everybody looks at Netflix differently now than than they did two years ago. There's no, there's no question um, about it. Diller believes that Netflix will um, dominate um, uh, forever. That, that 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 for a long time. That that no one can ever catch. Yeah, up I listened to that. They interview. shouldn't even think he about. He didn't really it make the years. argument for it though. He just kind of said it. I think it's funny. I mean, people like that. Like he's he's obviously very smart and has decades behind him, but he can he's just say something. Man. He doesn't have to have the empirical argument now. He can just say something and it'll generate a headline and then other people will sort of write the news stories to explain it, which, you know, is certainly a power move, but he didn't really make a robust case for that, though it's compelling. I mean, Netflix is a very I, powerful I, company. I bought it. I mean, the point being, if you're at over 209 subscribers or whatever it is, you know, even if Disney has caught up quickly or HBO Max is catching up quickly, yeah. um, they're never really going to, to, to dislodge the front runner. And, and yeah. that's okay. They're there's nothing wrong with that. They're competing yeah. with them. They're taking subscribers away from them.
Yeah, well, competition can be healthy to a point that we we know that from from a lot of different but, cases. But the other the other point of that Stuber piece, the Netflix piece, was to um, they were one of the things we kept hearing at at uh, Cannes were people slagging Netflix for following algorithms when they make creative decisions, and and this article was clearly designed and it was aimed at filmmakers to convince them that this was a filmmaker-friendly place to work and that uh, they do not make decisions like this uh, around algorithms. Well, algorithms are definitely driving something at the end of the day, whether or not... I mean, the thing is, once you start looking at the numbers, you you start to have a part of your brain that's just aware of those numbers and you know what does well and what doesn't well. We know this from looking at traffic figures on the site. You don't have to drill down in the algorithms to understand how something might perform. You can just sort of look at it and make those decisions too. So it's still part of the conversation one way or another, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. We should know how people watch things and make informed decisions and either subvert expectations or play into them. Here's how they use the algorithm. They, they, uh, let's look at it another way. Let's just say their numbers crunching, right? They're figuring out what, uh, how much they can afford to spend versus what the return is going to be. Instead of using box office as that measure of return, it's subscribers and that's how they figure it out so they're not going to spend as much on something that's small but they take really big risks on things that the studios would never spend marketing dollars on out uh to send them to theaters ever which which you know that 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 is something commendable no matter how you look at the, the the wider context of it so we should Close off by at least talking about one movie that's in theaters this week, if, if you're in America, because its UK release was canceled, and that's The Green Knight, David Lowry's movie, which is this wild, really fascinating, pretty fun fantasy adaptation of this Arthurian, uh, I don't want to say epic poem, but it's a ballad, a, a ballad of sorts from the, I think, 13th century, 14th century. Uh, with Dev Patel, I think in top form as this uh, the nephew, this sort of hapless wayward nephew. Is the word I would use, <laughs> hapless nephew of King Arthur, who uh, has to basically uh, decapitates this tree-like figure and then agrees to to go find him a year later so that he can do the same thing to him. So it's like a guy who basically knows he has you to die. You're not, you're not explaining this. It's quite, it's a really hard movie well. to explain. No, it, it, that's it, what's enjoyable a, about it. It's so a weird. Setup. There's a setup where when I when I saw this, it reminded me of something that somebody said to me once, which I've always um, uh, kept in mind. It's it's an old um, corporate um, rule: never volunteer. (laughs) So he basically wants to prove his valor and make himself look good to to his king, King Arthur, the aging King Arthur, and the Round Table. All the great. He admits that he's that he's never done anything, and and he wants to prove himself. So he goes and and agrees to this. The Green Knight shows up, throws down a challenge. He agrees to the challenge, gets himself set up in a situation where he cannot fail. You know, fail to lose. Because if he goes back and and is honorable and does the thing he's supposed to do by the code of chivalry, he will be uh, decapitated. So he, it's a anyway, fascinating story. Yeah, and it there is, you go. It does take also, a little while to explain. <laughs> to the extent that I just had trouble explaining it and you had trouble <laughs> explaining it, that's the extent to which David Lowry, given the chance, because I really revere this guy, I think he's fantastic, given the chance 
to make an accessible version of the Green Knight and make a very, very inaccessible version. He chose the latter. And you will see that critics love this movie. Critics are raving about it. I have a lot of appreciation for what the movie does accomplish. But at the same time, there's a more commercial version of it buried inside. And I'm sorry that Lowry didn't figure out how to get both things across the finish line. It's a it's an odd movie and it fo- it follows this bizarre labyrinthian path and in some ways it almost felt like a 70s movie like a lot of his stuff it felt you know like something Altman would have done or it, it just it had this like really bizarre kind of like shaggy dog protagonist just sort of wandering through all these strange circumstances but then it arrives at this beautiful finale which we shouldn't spoil but is it's you know emotionally finale. resonant and it i think that's the whole movie together it's worth noting lowry is not an obvious commercial filmmaker i mean we'll see how his peter pan comes out but this is a guy who has always been about trying to take uh innovative approaches to to mythology to fantasy in a way that it's almost like smuggling in his kind of weird DIY kind of mentality. And he's been doing that his whole career. You look at his Pete's Dragon uh, live action version, a very similar kind of sensibility, I think, coursing through that. And I, I think that's amazing. I mean, I don't know how much the movie cost. It looked like it wasn't cheap, but was uh, this is not. Yeah, this is not the creative who you turn it's to gorgeous. when you want. It's beautifully the big mounted, crossover. beautifully shot. Yeah. It has some brilliant, brilliant sequences that, you know, could be taught in film schools for years to come. Yeah, I, I have due appreciation for what he does here. I mean, someone like, uh, you know, Peter Wallen could analyze the semiotics of this movie and, and oh, it's make a, lot of a fun. Good, great case it's, out of it. Yeah, but, the implications it's not there, going yeah. to play well with a lot of people. Which, you know what? So so that, that that is true for most of the movies that we wind up praising throughout the year. But people should take a risk on it because for every, you know, three movie goers who are kind of weirded out or, or bored or whatever it is, you're going to get two or three others who went because they wanted to see Dev Patel shirtless. And they're going to be like, whoa, that was a really cool unexpected movie. And that's a portal to a whole new experience. And maybe they'll watch some other films as a result. So there's value there. So I, if I were to compare this movie to Titan, right? I oh know boy. That's a weird thing. To Where do. are we going here, Andy? I would say that Tatan, for all of its craziness, has an, an extraordinary amount of discipline and um, understanding, not only of, of what the director is trying to say, but how to get an audience to see it and appreciate it and understand it. And what's wrong with this movie, I think, is that Lowry decided not to let the audience understand what he was doing. He kept them at bay in some ways, confusing them purposefully, clearly, and and making them come along on this journey and try to figure it out. And then at the end, you have an opportunity to do it. But he may have lost people along the way. Does that Does that make sense, Eric? Maybe, but I also think that it's not the missed opportunity you're describing. I mean, I, I think the, the kind of fundamental messiness of it is what's exciting and, 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 and different and, and it allows it to be, uh, you know, sort of as, as resonant as it actually is because it's a strange project in the first place. Uh, it wanders a bit. But I, but I ultimately think that because the ending is so good, it, it forces people to go back and, and evaluate the experience that they've had and is, is stronger as a result of all of that. Uh, Titane is a fascinating point of comparison because Titane is just, it's a movie that has a very cohesive uh, theme and focus all the way through, but it's a, a smaller scale kind of storytelling. So it That's doesn't, true. you know, it's, it's not trying to sort of 
disorient you quite as much with its narrative arc. In some ways, it's a more conventional movie, at least from a you know it is, classical actually. storytelling standpoint. Yeah, which, it is. Weirdly it is. enough, these are strange times. So I guess next That's week, the thing. You can get away with a really weird, outrageous movie if you give um, the audience uh, some familiar um, uh, structures to hang, hang their comprehension on. And, and oh. that's what Lowry decided not to do. So I'm all about disruption, but that's, that's we'll, we'll see how it plays. <laughs> all right. So next week, I don't even know what we're looking ahead to. There's a lot coming up. There's more developments in terms of the release calendar. We'll certainly have some festival news to talk through and speculation about Telluride. So, and I hope that you're as excited as I am for whatever this weirdness is. It may be scary and intimidating, but at the end of the day, we're still getting a fall movie season one way or the other. So and the other, the other thing I will say at the end of this is that um, if we are uh, supporting original movies, and uh, Tom did it, Tom Brueggemann did a good story about this. Let's go see Stillwater and the Green Knight this weekend. I'll see you there, at least you know symbolically, because I've already seen them. But <laughs> I'll see week. you next week. Bye. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.